Hi everyone, welcome to Zooming In on ID, a new series of short podcasts that give us the chance to get to know some of the scholars in LSE's International Development Department. I'm your host, Duncan Green, and with me today is ID Assistant Professor Sahini Carr, who is a socio-cultural anthropologist focusing on economic anthropology of South Asia. We're going to get to what that means in a bit, Sahini, but um, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Um, maybe just kick off by telling us a bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up, where you studied, how you ended up at the LSE. Sure. Um, so I, as you mentioned, I'm an anthropologist. Um, I didn't start out as an anthropologist, actually. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in economics at Columbia University in, in New York. Um, and then as I was doing economics, I grew somewhat disillusioned with some of the methodological approaches of, you know, how to sort of study things that are going on. I was doing my senior thesis on the fiscal deficit in India and things that I was seeing sort of that made sense through the numbers I knew sort of from personal experience didn't make sense on the ground. Um, so going through this process, I, you know, wanted to see what were other ways that we could look at the economy. Um, and so I started taking anthropology classes in the last year of my uh, undergraduate degree um, in which I kind of decided actually I think anthropology is a better option for me after that. I um, did another master's degree at um, University of Chicago to try to sort of see if I really wanted to um, explore the anthropology further. I decided I did. Um, I, I worked for a year at the Field Museum in, in Chicago working on, on grants management um, that was fun in its own way. Uh, it's a museum of natural history there. Um, and then after that, I started my PhD at Brown University. Um, and that's really where I got into more looking specifically at economic anthropology. Um, so that's sort of my trajectory in, in my uh, education. Um, I didn't grow up, I grew up in Japan actually. So I was born in India where I lived until I was three. Um, then my family moved to Japan. Um, and I spent the rest of uh, my childhood there, um, my parents and family still live there. So it's sort of, um, I'm, that's home for me in many ways. Um, India, I still have lots of relatives and it's also where I do most of my research. Um, so I definitely have, you know, homes in lots of places. I've spent lots of time in, in Japan, obviously, in India, in the United States, um, and now here in the UK at LSC. I mean, those are three or four incredibly different cultures. I mean, what is that? <laughs> do to your brain and the way you see the world? Um, I mean, I think in, in lots of ways, uh, being an anthropologist is helpful because um, I, I try to understand, you know, myself in, in many ways through the, the different cultural sort of contexts that I'm in. Um, but, you know, what, one of the things when you grow up in, in different places is of course that you don't know anything else. So to me, my, you know, very disoriented <laughs> kind of childhood and uh, growing up is, is very normal. Um, so I, in some ways, I don't know what it's like to, you know, grow up in one place and to not be there. you. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, fascinating. Great. Um, uh, tell us a bit about <clears throat> what, what an economic anthropologist is, because for me, those have always been two fairly warring tribes people who don't always show massive mutual respect and often have very different ways of understanding the world. So what is, when you put them together, what do you get? Um, so the, the economy, I think, you know, is this vast sort of area in which economists obviously 
have a, a large say in, but it can be looked at um, through all sorts of dimensions. And I think anthropologists have their own take on how we understand the economy. Um, actually, one of the sort of early economic anthropologists is, uh, has a connection to the LSE, uh, which is Malinowski um, in the early 20th century. And, you know, one of the things that he found when he was doing his work in the, um, in the South Pacific and the Trobriand Islands um, was to say that, you know, there, there were these sort of circulations and trade amongst these different islands. Um, but there's a whole host of sort of cultural interactions that go with it. And the economy isn't just sustained by sort of free trade, um, but there are cultural institutions. There are other ways in which we ensure that what we think of as the economy actually works. Um, and so economic anthropologists try to look at, um, you know, what are, what are all these other ways and things that happen that make the economy work? Um, all that stuff about networks of trust and sort of the, the, the more, the less visible things exactly. that actually make economic relations circulate and function. That's your kind of field, is it? That's yeah, stuff. yeah. Okay. That, and you've, microfinance is one of your big issues, uh, mm -hmm. I understand. So talk to me about the anthropology of microfinance a bit and what, what, you, what your research has, has been on. Sure. Um, so again, we can, you know, if we start off thinking about how microfinance has become popular and one of the ways in which, uh, so just briefly for anyone who doesn't know what microfinance is, it's the giving of small loans, um, often to poor women, um, because women are primarily excluded from access to, to microcredit. Um, so again, I'm using microfinance as a shorthand often to talk about microcredit, but it does include other forms of financial services, but mostly I'm gonna be talking about credit here. Um, and the, what I'm interested in is on the one hand that microfinance has been celebrated, it has a very high recovery rate, over 90% um, recovery rate for uh, for these loans. So it's often been that thought that, you know, poor people wouldn't take loans, wouldn't be able to pay back. But actually with the Grameen Bank and in the 90s and early 2000s, what people started to find was actually, you know, the poor do pay back. It's, um, uh, and it became popular, not only in sort of the nonprofit sector, but also from financial institutions. And that's really where my interest is in, in terms of microfinance is looking at how sort of global finance comes into microfinance and what then that means for um, people working at the ground, also for borrowers. So you have this process of sort of financialization of um, lending to the poor itself. And so microcredit, which started off in you know, much smaller scale run by NGOs, now has major players. So the big banks all have investments in uh, microfinance institutions. Um, so I'm trying to think of, uh, understand what happens when you start to have these linkages um, to the poor. Um, tell us, tell us what happens. Uh, so one of the things is that risk becomes a big factor because the, the reason that, um, again, these big banks are interested because they get quite high returns from lending to the poor. So on the one hand, having 90% recovery rates um, is unprecedented for most lending. Um, so it's a really good investment opportunity. Um, but to do so, they, they have to sort of, what I was looking at with microfinance institution, this is where the anthropology side comes in. So I did um, field work in Calcutta, working with one of these commercial microfinance institutions. I'd go to all their um, different group meetings. Again, the money is collected in, these, in person by these loan officers who go every day to these different groups. Um, and what I started to notice was actually this sort of, despite this argument that it is actually financial inclusion that you're lending out to more people, there is quite strict criteria about who was getting loans and how it was managed. Um, and so for example, even though the loans are given to women, um, they still require a male guarantor 
on paper for the for the loans. And so when I asked, you know, why do you need a male guarantor? They were like, well, one is that we want to make sure that, you know, the person's husband doesn't come around and say, why didn't you tell us you, this, you gave a loan? I'm not returning it. The second was that they figured that it was mostly men who actually had the income streams that they were relying on to pay back the loans. Um, so what they were looking was for was existing, pre-existing income streams and to ensure that they could collect these loans. Um, again, this goes against the spirit of that this was supposed to be loans to sort of build entrepreneurship. They weren't looking for that. They were looking for existing um, sort of income and they weren't looking to sort of make women um, that empowered either. So there's a, a bunch of people writing, yeah, Milford Bateman and people like that, who basically saying that microfinance lost its mojo when it went commercial and it's become a form of exploitation. Are you in that camp? Very, I make everything very crude, I'm sorry. but uh, um, so so I, I definitely have sort of a mixed um, understanding of, of microfinance. On the one hand, I think the, the form it takes does have serious problems. Um, on the other hand, I try to understand why people are so desperate to get these loans. Um, and partly it's the condition of poverty. So as long as there's poor people, they need um, loans of some sort to make ends meet to sort of, what I found was a lot of women I talked to were taking loans for private education, for private healthcare, um, to fix their houses. Um, it wasn't for sort of these small business purposes, but basically consumption loans to try to make ends meet. Um, I think the challenge is sort of finding a way to ensure people have access to sort of loans that have flexibility. Um, one of the problems with microfinance is that it has very little flexibility. So um, whenever there's a crisis, we can talk more about this later, it becomes very difficult for, for people to actually pay back and microfinance doesn't have a lot of built-in sort of, and that's what their success relies on, okay. uh, is for people to repay every week. So we'll get to COVID in a minute, but one final question on this. So, so you know, obviously microfinance is incredibly gendered. Um, it's always been built around women and women's savings groups and women's, you know, uh, uh, groups. Do you think on balance, it has been an empowering exercise for um, women in poor communities? Or do you think that it's actually become a new form of self-exploitation? Um, I think I, I, I resist sort of generalizing across every... Um, <laughs> I expect nothing less. I expect nothing less. <laughs> but um, for example, even in India, if we look at um, people who studied the rural side, have found that there's greater impact of um, sort of empowerment because it helps women to leave the house because they have to go to these meetings every week. So in a sense, it sort of forces people to be able to come out of their house, at, um, you know, in more conservative um, areas, this is a challenge for women. So it does offer um, in some contexts a, a possibility for, for women to be empowered in ways that wasn't there before. Um, in urban contexts, for example, where I look at, um, they saw these group meetings, but it's in neighbors who live within five minutes of each other. They're always in and out of each other's houses. It's not, it doesn't serve the same kind of purpose. Um, in fact, it often gets in the way of everyday sort of domestic labor that people have to do because they're going to these meetings every morning um, as well. So I think, again, thinking about those particular contexts shows us that it, it can have empowering effects in, in one way, um, in other ways, it's, you know, very sort of marginal to whether that, that would happen. Right. Okay. So let's talk COVID. How, how does this all look now? I mean, have you got a, a bunch of um, people with loans that they can't pay back? Um, are there other aspects of your work which are relevant to COVID? Talk us, talk us through that. Sure. Um, so one is that microfinance has gone through several crises in the last decade or so. Um, in 2010, there was a crisis in India um, in, in microfinance. 
and I'm sp speaking more about India here, which is my, my area. Um, but generally, globally, we've seen sort of patterns of crisis emerge. Um, in uh, 2016, I believe, when there was the demonetization of um, Indian currency, there was again a period of crisis. But the sector had overcome those crises. They weren't sort of, um, you know, way, there were ways to sort of, they didn't fundamentally change the economy in which the poor were working in. Um, you know, there were, there were challenges, but it didn't upend people. Um, COVID, I think, is a completely different case now, um, partly because it has two, two sides of its effect. One is that it affects the institutions. Um, so obviously, microfinance institutions now are struggling to sort of regain their capital. Um, they, you know, there are some ways that the government and sort of the central bank are trying to sort of manage the, the microfinance institutions. So there's, on the one hand, there's an institutional hit that's going on with the crisis. Um, and of course, the, the other side is that most people who are taking loans work in the informal economy. Um, they've been, in India, they've been devastated by COVID. Um, and you know, I'm sure many of you have seen the images of migrants who are walking home. Um, so on the borrower side, of course, there's never been a greater need than now for things like, like loans. And yet, um, you know, the microfinance can't actually fill those gaps because it requires the, the kind of things I was talking about, sort of um, managing who gets the loan, what the risks are. Even when I was doing um, research before, the migrants were seen as higher risk. Um, so often when they were looking in the urban context at uh, borrowers who are migrants, they would sort of consider whether they were stable enough in the city or not. Of course, now we know that, you know, the, that, that effect is much greater. So a lot of um, migrants who otherwise seem to have stable lives in the city um, now don't and are leaving. So are we seeing the sort of profit-making part of microfinance retreat and just leave the BRACs and the Grameen banks? Is that what's happening now? Uh, I think there's a potential for that. Um, again, the the challenge in India has been that there has, for a while, there was sort of both the self-help group model, which is again the nonprofit sort of drawing on Grameen and BRAC type, um, which have in some ways been sidelined by the commercial sector simply because the commercial sector was offering bigger loans. They had sort of um, more outreach, um, and so there's less of that in, in at least in urban India um, off that sector there now so perhaps there's an opportunity for them to come back um, but the other issue right now is um, you know when will people be actually be in a place where they can afford to take take loans out um, you know in the in the short term as long as you know the the impact of COVID goes on in the informal economy there's very little <clears throat> opportunity for, for poor people to, to actually be able to repay the loans. And that's what you'll be looking at over the next few months, I imagine. <clears throat> yes, I'll be trying to track that, of course, the challenges. An anthropologist, it's very hard to do that from, from afar. Um, Remote so, anthropology is now a thing, is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but hopefully I'll get back as, as soon as I can to try to... Okay. So, Hinika, we've got to stop there. Thank you very much for coming on Zooming in. And Great. good luck with your so work. Okay. Thanks, Duncan.